This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, like I said, we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this morning. So turn in your Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it should be page 554. If you're using your own Bible, I can't help you out there. You'll just have to find it. There's a table of contents like most books in your Bible. So this book, Ecclesiastes, it's been so rich. It's so deep to be in so far. This is a book just very simply, very profoundly about the meaning of life. And throughout much of it, it's, it's the author who calls himself the preacher inviting us into a search for the essence of what it means to be human. And so it doesn't get more fundamental. It doesn't get more bottom line than Ecclesiastes, but it also doesn't get much bigger either. This is a book about life. And just like life, it goes high and it gets low. And like life, it can be raw And this is an honest book of the Bible. All the books of the Bible are honest, but this is an honest book of the Bible. As I've been just sort of living in this book for the past couple of months, I found myself saying over and over again, these are the kinds of things we have trouble bringing ourselves to think about, but we should think about these things. We should put in that work, even though it's hard, because if we can enter into this kind of space, if we can enter into this frame of mind, if we can enter into these ideas, and enter into the biggest questions, then we will all be the better for it. And so as we jump in this morning, we're going to be later in verse 18 and following. Let me just start off with a statement to sort of frame our time together. It's kind of a philosophical statement, but it's actually pretty simple. Here it is. Quite often... What we think is important is not actually that important. Right? It's philosophical, but it's simple. So let me just say that again. What we think is important is not actually that important most of the time. And let me just tell you what I mean by this. Build that out a little bit more. Let me, let me kind of prove that to you. So broadening our, Ecclesiastes wants us to broaden our perspective. And broadening our perspective helps us to see what's really important. Taking steps back from the normal, taking steps back from the everyday helps us to see what's really important. So take a day in your life, just one regular day. What we consider important on any given day Actually, as we look back over the past week, rarely seems quite as important as it did on that day. Have you found that to be true? What you think might have been important on Wednesday, if you kind of look back, go, you know, I was worried about it. I was concerned about it. I was nervous about it. I, I, I fretted a lot about it. And then it turned out to be okay. Or I spent all this energy on this on Wednesday, and it actually didn't really matter. So that's a week. But go back farther. What we think is important, the most important day of our week, the most important thing that's going on this week, rarely seems that important when we just look back on the year. 
when we look back on what, what was last year like for me? How was our family last year? What was a marriage like last year? How are the kids doing last year? And then when we think back on a year after a decade, it's much easier to see what's truly important. And then if you just kind of go the ultimate thing, talk to someone who is realistically pretty near the end of their life, and they will tell you what really matters. And it will almost never be what you thought was important on any given day or what was kind of dominating that week or even as the years go by. I've done that. I've sat with people and just said, tell me, now that you're probably just realistically near the end of your life, what is it that's really important? You know what? I've never heard anybody say, you know what? I just wish I spent more time at work. I just wish I was more into my email. Or I wish, man, I wish I was on social media so much more, but I can't go back and do it over again. I've never heard anybody say that. I've never met anybody who said, I wish I was harder on my kids. Never, ever heard anybody say that. Never heard someone say, you know, I really regret, I I loved people and I served them, and sometimes I got taken advantage of, and I just regret loving and serving people so openly and so deeply. Never heard that. I don't know a single person who felt like they should have been more distracted, spent more time worrying what might happen. I've never met anybody who said, I wish I wasn't so present in the moments I was in. I wish I was more I wish I, I thought more about other places and other people that I wasn't with. It's always the opposite. When people reflect back on their days and their weeks, their months, their years, their decades, what they realize is the grace that God gives related to life comes to us. We see the fullness of life. The way the author of Ecclesiastes would probably phrase it is we are the most human when we realize that life from God is best lived with the one he's given and put right in front of us. The life he's given and put right in front of us. Not taking those things for granted. And when we can just learn to see the goodness of God right here and right now. Not trying to find it someplace else not believing that somebody else has more of the grace of God or more of the goodness of God or more than the blessing of God than we do, but seeing that even though life can be hard, even though there are struggles, God is with you. God is near to you, and the life you have is the one that God in his providence and his sovereignty and his goodness has put you in. If we want to know what the essence of humanity is, if we want to know what it means to live, if we want to know what the meaning of life is, it is that, to live the life that God has given to us. And that's what the preacher says at the end of Ecclesiastes 2. Let God give you perspective that most people do not gain, do not come to until the end of their life. But learn it now, do it now, so that while you are still living, 
Well, you might be if you're younger, near the beginning of your life. Well, if you're in the middle of your life, even if you only have a few years left, learn to see the goodness of God and find his grace there. God doesn't mean for us to live and to want and to seek after a different life. We glorify him most by living life that he has given us right in front of us as a sacrifice of praise and worship to him. That's what Ecclesiastes 2 has been driving toward, and that's what the preacher is going to pound this morning. And so, again, if you have your Bible, let's pick it up at verse 18. Listen as I read. I'm going to read the the whole rest of the chapter. It's, It's not that long, but I'm going to read it for us. Just listen, kind of read along if you've got your Bible there. He says, I hated all my toil. I'm going to kind of bring it back and, and tie it in with, with verse 17 and previous, but I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. In these verses, probably where we'll spend the most of our time, 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. From apart from him... Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and striving after wind. That's a phrase that comes up over and over, vanity, similar to the word for breath. Things come and things go and they're quick and they're like that in life. So this is a continuation of what the preacher has been saying in the first part of the chapter. He's made it his mission to find the true essence of life, what makes a person happy, what fulfills you. And to do that, he tried all these things. He tried first pleasure, Just he's going to make his life a never-ending party. Then he tried building and gathering. He has wealth and he built great homes. He has an empire. Says he did all of that and other things, pleasures of the world. But he did it all because and according to his wisdom. He studied, he learned, he approached everything with a purpose. He didn't just party, but he partied to say, what's the best way that I can party to see if partying the best way can help me feel fulfilled in life? And at the end, he realizes this. 
whether he's rich or whether he's poor, or whether he wields great power or he's a nobody, even if he's wise or stupid, your life, his life, all of our lives pretty much end the same way. So now where we pick it up, he's frustrated. And he's asking, he's, he's asking, what's the point of all of this? When we read the Bible, we're often used to finding answers. If you think of something like the Apostle Paul, very much of the New Testament gives you quite a bit of answers. There's a little maybe of a Socratic method of here's a question, but here's the answer. Ecclesiastes is a fairly unique book in the Bible. Much of it is the preacher just working through. This is just sort of him writing down. It's more like a journal than it is a, a, a theological proclamation. So he's working it out. We're seeing him sort of in real time work out his frustration, his search. And so we arrive at frustration for him. What's the point of life? I've tried everything, whether I do it right or wrong, whether I do it good or bad, it just ends the same way. And even if I do well, even if I'm successful, who knows what happens after that? So the preacher is probably Solomon, the wealthiest and most powerful king in Israel's history. It's not hyperbole to say that he had basically everything. Yet now he's, he's looking at everything that he's gathered, all that he's built, all this, this whole kingdom, everything that his kingdom is, and he's realizing that at the end of his life, all he's going to be able to do with his greatness is give it to somebody else. And then it's occurred to him that there's really no guarantee that the next generation is going to handle it very well. So the preacher really, he's getting, kind of getting hit from both sides here. He disdains kind of his work. He's kind of come to disdain his life. Because he first realizes that no matter how good he is at it, no matter how successful he is, he can take nothing from his success into death. He doesn't get to take anything with him. And then secondly, what does remain goes to somebody else, and maybe they blow it. So let's talk about what we do with our lives. Let's talk about our lives. Let's talk about our work. He, he kind of focuses in on work, but he kind of uses work as the, as the bigger thing. So let's talk about our work for just a minute. We have often a love-hate relationship with our work, don't we? Now, some of us in here are lucky enough to really love our jobs. But there's probably not even the majority of us. And ironically, whether you love your job, whether you can barely stand another day of it, we're prone to giving our jobs much more power in shaping our identity than we really should. Now, I am sure this applies to women as well. But as I talk to men, this is probably the most common struggle I hear them express. Conversations almost always turn to work. Whenever I ask a guy, kind of meet a new guy, our, our conversations inevitably go toward, you know, what do we do for a living? 
And for me, I know our conversation's either going to get really interesting or super awkward. Usually it's really awkward because people have no idea what to do when I say, hey, I'm a pastor. I either hear all their history with church or they look for anybody else in the room to, to talk to. So when we talk about work, or when, when, we're, when I'm with guys, it's, it's mostly work talk. What do you do? And in almost any heart-level conversation that I have with another man, he will tell me he's struggling with his work-home balance, work-family balance. And I do too. Uh, let me burst a bubble for you really quick. I love my job. If I had money coming in from someplace else, I would do most of what I do for free. But I wouldn't do all of what I do for free, and I wouldn't do it every day. And I love my job. And so I'm a, I'm a pastor. I can see how you others could look at my job and think that I must go from just one life-changing minute to another, and how could I possibly struggle to balance what I'm doing? I get to do things of internal, eternal importance, and I've got a great family. So how could I even struggle to balance that? Isn't, isn't your life just one great life-altering moment after another? Number one, no, it's not. A lot of what I do is way more mundane than you want to, than you want to think it is. Number two, before I'm a pastor, I'm a husband and I'm a father. Even though ministry is my job, that can still very easily get out of whack, get out of balance. I can get off kilter. And at times, it's happened. And I've come to learn that I'm a much better pastor when I'm looking at my work, my toil, as Solomon calls it, the right way. And the right way for me to look at my work is the same way as it is for you to look at yours. To see that the work you have is a part, but is not the entirety of God's calling on your life. Every single one of us has the same reality here. No matter what you do for work, whether that's in the marketplace or in the home, whether you are retired from a job and now have freedom to invest in your family and loved ones and other people, whether you have young children and you are concentrated on their well-being and frankly just keeping them alive from day to day, my wife would tell you just snacks. Snacks are a big part of what my wife does but it's still a lot of work. And I know it is because when I'm at home for a little while, I can't stand all the snacking we do at our house. My kids always need a snack. No matter what you do, this is God's calling on your life, but it's only part of it. So don't make it more important than it should be. That's what Solomon is learning. That's what Solomon is feeling. I've given myself over to this, but have I given too much of myself over to this? And so now he's frustrated. All that I've done, all that I've built, all that I've accomplished, he's growing disheartened because he realizes that he can't take it with him, and eventually he's got to hand it over to somebody else. This is a huge part of why we shouldn't make our work our identity. We won't do it forever. Listen, I know you work hard. I know you're valuable. 
where you work. I know you're valuable at your company, but let me just be honest, and this is not meant to discourage you. This is meant to free you. I can say this for me too. If you quit tomorrow, if you just walked in tomorrow and said, I quit, your employer would probably be sad for about a half an hour, and then they would start putting together a job description to replace you. And that's not meant to depress you. I say that to free you. Don't kill yourself. Don't give too much of yourself to a job that will sooner or later not be yours anymore and you will sooner or later be replaced there. I love you. I have no intention of leaving this job. But this applies to me too. I know that if I did go someplace else, if I wasn't the pastor here anymore, what we'd do is we'd have a nice party, and then like two weeks later, there would be a meeting for a search committee to replace me. I get that. That's not depressing to me. That's actually freeing to me, because it means that I don't have to give everything of myself and draw all my identity from here, or from what I do, and neither do you. I get the preacher's heartache over this too. I'm coming up on 10 years as pastor of our Savior this summer, and I think we've got a really good thing going here. But despite everybody's best efforts, I know that we could get somebody in here that would royally screw it up really quickly. That weighs on me. And that's what he's afraid of. In verse 19, that's what he's afraid of. I don't know how much Solomon knew when he wrote this. But this is exactly what ended up happening to him. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam inherited one of the greatest kingdoms the world has ever seen. And in less than 20 years, he managed to lose, 1 Kings 12 tells us, five-sixths of it. In less than 20 years. It was in shambles less than two decades later. One of the greatest kingdoms, some of the greatest wealth the world has ever seen and is gone. In less than a generation, after Solomon, the kingdom breaks apart. And it's not long in terms of history, so quick in terms of history, until this whole kingdom is overrun by a much bigger nation and the whole thing just lies in ruins. So in verse 24, the preacher says that his days are full of sorrow and his work is of a vexation. He means that one of the most innate desires of every person is to do something worthwhile. To build something that lasts, to perform, to be known for our achievements. That's very, very common to our experience. But he now realizes that no matter how hard he works, he really has no control over it. And we are prone to do the same thing. We're prone to spending our lives working for something that we can never keep. And something that despite our best efforts might not even last much longer than we do. And again, the best way to live freely, the best way to live as human as we possibly can, is not to pretend like things are different from the way that they actually are. It's freeing to learn these things because then we can be honest with ourselves, we can be honest with other people, and we can live the life that God has meant to live. I said this the first week, but I could say it just about anything in Ecclesiastes. If I stood up here in Ecclesiastes and said, your job is the most important thing you'll ever do, 
You're so important at your job that nobody will ever replace you. That's a lie. And it would actually be a terrible disservice to you. Because you'd throw everything you are into that. You'd, you'd make that your identity. You'd, you'd let that shape you. You'd let it pull you from what you're actually meant to be doing. Your work is absolutely a part of what God has called you to do, but don't let it be too big a part. Follow him, but live the entire life that he has set out for you. The preacher has learned this. Every single one of us would be wise to learn it too. If we try to find our meaning, our purpose, our identity in our work, we'll only be disappointed. You will only be disappointed if you try to put too much of yourself into your work. If your work is your life, you're never really going to live. You'll be running a marathon. It's like on a treadmill. Stretching your legs, pumping your arms, sweating, breathing hard. But you're never really going anywhere. Think of the treadmill. It's just, there's always more of that conveyor belt to come around. You'll never get to a finish line. You'll just be spinning. So what should we do? And what do we do? Should we quit our jobs? You go home in despair? Think, what, what's the point of all this anyway? Tomorrow morning you go in. Maybe you're not going in anymore. You get on the Zoom call. Your boss says, hey, we've got an exciting new project. And you go, what's the point? You're just going to replace me anyway. It's all meaningless. I didn't even put on pants this morning. No. Don't do that. Don't quit your job. Don't say that. Keep reading. Keep reading the Bible. Keep reading this. The preacher takes a really surprising turn that we're not going to expect in verse 24. Verse 24. Let me just read these again. So good. Verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. Where, didn't, didn't we just say your toil's meaningless? Don't be too much in your work. Now he's saying we'll find enjoyment in your toil? This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So these words are not only hopeful. This is a hopeful term, but they, these words actually frame the entire book. Martin Luther, great theologian Martin Luther, wrote that this right here, verses 24 and 25, are the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. Now we've got all the way through chapter 12 to flesh it out. But, but in a very real way, all that the preacher learns about life are summed up right here in these two verses. This is basically the middle of Ecclesiastes. Even though we've got a long way to go, ultimately what the preacher learns is that life with God is full of meaning and depth and beauty and life without God is hopeless and bereft of true joy. But he doesn't just come out and say that here. To be fair, we, we've got a long way to go in him explaining this, but this is where he starts. Ecclesiastes gets different after this. It's still, it's still a pretty, pretty hard book, <coughs> but it gets different. This is the turning point. So let me, let me, let me show you why <clears throat> and how. So first, if you go back to the beginning part of Ecclesiastes, you will realize that the preacher hasn't mentioned God yet in chapter 2. 
I think it was 113, that was the last time that he mentioned God. He's looking for the essence of life. He's trying everything. And up until now, he's told you all about his search. And God hasn't factored in. The second thing is there is an embracing here of life that is really profound. The best way to ruin a moment is to wish that you weren't in it. Think about that. The best way to ruin a moment is to wish that you weren't in it. And the same thing is true for just about any situation. You could do this with anything. Have you ever been someplace that you really could have enjoyed, you really could have experienced, you really could have leaned into, but instead you spent your time wishing you were someplace else? Here's what doesn't work about wishing we were with somebody else or wishing we were someplace else. You lose both ways. You miss out on something that could be really great where you are and with who, in, in the people you're with, and you don't actually get to be anywhere else. You still have to be there. You're still there, so you lose either way. Instead, appreciating where God has put you allows you the freedom to ask Even when you don't know why you're there, even when you wonder what the meaning and the purpose of this is, how can I glorify God in this moment? It allows you to ask, how can I praise God right now? And when we're asking that, when we're asking questions like, how can we love and serve right now? How can I grow as a follower of Jesus Christ right now? Your life has a completely different perspective. You go from spending lots of wasted time and energy and life wishing things were a different way and learning to embrace the life that God has given you. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for there to be any way for him to fulfill his mission, the purpose for which he was born into the world, than to go die brutally on the cross the next day. He wanted any other way, but there wasn't. He had to go to the cross. He had to die. It was God's will in that moment that his one and only son obey to the point all the way unto death. And through his obedience, through Jesus knowing that that's what he was sent to do, What we have now, despite the brutality of that moment, despite the shame of that moment, is that anybody who believes in his name, you, if you believe in him, can know what true life is. Because Jesus was obedient to death, we can know true life. And without Jesus doing exactly what we're talking about, Jesus could have brought himself out of that moment. Jesus could have wished himself, could have willed himself, could have powered himself out of that moment to any other moment. But instead he said, no, this is the moment that God has brought me to. And so he said, not my will, but your will be done because Jesus has done exactly that. Without him doing that, we have no hope. We have no peace. 
We ourselves really have no other purpose than punishment without him. But because he was obedient, because in that moment he did choose the will of the Father, because he actively obeyed and fulfilled the mission that God had sent for the reason that he had come, now we can know life. We can have life in this world and we get assurance of life with God forever. Look at verse 26. Really remarkable verse in Ecclesiastes. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. We please God by glorifying him. And a big part of that glorification is trusting him that according to his sovereignty, under his providence, we're where we're supposed to be. We're in front of the people we're supposed to be in front of. And we bring him glory, not when our questions are, how can I do something else? I wish my life was different. How can my life be different? But in this moment, how do I bring glory to God? The opposite of that, Solomon says, is the sinner. This preacher says that the sinner is someone who can't do this. And to them, God says there will be like this never-ending cycle of gathering and collecting. He means it's a job that never has an end and never really accomplishes anything. You will work and work and work, but you'll be in the same place the preacher was when he started. Just doing all these things, but never really getting anywhere, never really accomplishing anything. You'll be, the sinner who gathers and collects is is like one who works hard to gain something that in the long run doesn't really matter. But if we can learn to live the life that God has given to us, if we can learn to enter into it, then we will do things like work. Then we will do things like be in a family and have friends and serve other people. And we will do it according to the life and the good work that God has set out for us to do. But everything will be in its proper place. Everything will be in its balance. We won't work to give us our identity. We will work because God has spoken our identity over us and said that work is going to be a part of this. But not the whole thing. Even things like our children We can put too much of our identity in. We can see that even if our children don't live the lives that we want them to live, it's okay. Because we're asking, how do we glorify God? And what does God mean for us in this? Nobody's ever done this better than Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that it is the the legacy of, of our faith now to throw off sin by running the race that is set before us And the one we follow in running the race set before us is Jesus. Hebrews 2.12, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. If there was ever someone to say, I want different work. I want a different life. I don't like my job. It would have been him. Because his job was to live, be rejected, and brutally die. And he knew it from before he was born. 
but he didn't do that. In the garden, he said, your will be done. He said, the life that I have been given, that is the one that I will live. Because of that, he now lives forever, and we live forever in him. I wrestled with, with, with what this phrase means in verse 26. That the, the gathering and the collecting of the sinner would also be given to the faithful one who pleases God. I was, what in the world is going on there? What is the, what is the preacher getting at? Is he saying that, that even the, the toil of the sinner somehow goes to the, the faithful to God? And I think in some way it does. I think that's actually, I think a plain reading of this is best. What the preacher has in mind, I believe, is similar to an idea that Jesus laid out in one of his parables. Jesus told a parable about three servants who were each given some seed money by a master. One buried his seed money in the ground. The master was known as a hard laborer. And the other two used their seed money and turned a profit. One makes a profit five times what he started with. The other has a profit tenfold. And when the master comes back, the one... He wants his seed money, when he comes back, he wants his seed money back, and he's angry with the one who just buried it in the ground. Even though he gets the money back, that wasn't the point. The point was to take what he'd been given and do something with it. Do something even more, do something even greater, do something even better with it. It honored the master when the the servants took the seed money that they'd been given and they asked how they could do more with it, how they could make more with it. And so at the end of the parable, what happens is the one, the seed money is taken away from the cowardly servant and it's given to the servant who turned 10 times profit. And I began to think about this and think, this is the kind of work, this is the kind of life that God rewards. The preacher is not saying our work doesn't matter. He's saying, actually, that your work is far more important than you could ever know. Because God has given it to you. Imagine someone who is there. They're putting all their effort into their job. But all they think they're getting out of their job is a little money. Maybe they leave a little inheritance. You know, and then from there, who knows? Christian, your work is about so much more than earning a little money, having a little influence in the company. It's about leaving more than a little bit of an inheritance. Your work is part of God's plan for your life. You honor and glorify him by doing the work that he has set before you. And what we do when we work for the Lord, when we please the Lord, isn't about gaining the little temporary things of this world. It's about so much more than that. And we know Solomon found that apart from God, his work was just in vain. Remember, oh, I'll gather something and maybe I'll leave it to my kids. But who knows after that? 
But when you work for the Lord, you know that God has promised good to come out of it. Ephesians 2.10 says that we walk in a way to do the good work that God has prepared long ago in advance for us. So Christian, your work is of infinite value, but not because you get paid. That's good. I like getting paid too. I need to get paid too. I need an income. I have bills. I have mouths to feed, all that kind of stuff. But our work is for the Lord. And our purpose comes into it when we see it the right way. Working to please him. Working to make much of what he's given us. If you have talents, good. Praise God. He's given them to you. So go and use them for his glory. If you're good at your job, great. Be really good at it for the glory of God. So take today and prepare. Don't get up tomorrow morning thinking, what's the point of all this? Get up tomorrow morning and head to work knowing that what you do matters. Not because it's the sole thing that defines you. Not because it's the biggest contribution you'll ever make. But because you've already been defined. You've already been called out by God. You've already been put there for his purposes. And through that, you can even enjoy it. Nothing wrong with enjoying your work. I hope that you do. Even if the day-to-day tasks seem mundane. You're not just gathering and and collecting in some unending cycle. This world, folks, has an end. It's the one to come that does not. And God sent Jesus to found and perfect a way of life for us that completely reorients how we live in this world. We live in this world fully when we understand the right way to live in the world. And the way to live in this world is to both enjoy life now and to hope in life forever. And in all things, God receives glory. So that's what you should do this next week while you're at work. Whether you're in the office, whether you're online, whether you're at home with your family, whether by God's grace you've been able to retire from a nine-to-five or you know, a, a weekday job and invest in other people. Do the work that God has called, not because it's everything of who you are, but because God has given it to you. And you glorify him, you praise his name, you enter into the faith set forth by his son Jesus when we do the good work that God has prepared in advance for us. Let's pray. God, may your name be praised. I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you for the jobs that they have. They provide income for their families. They give us a cycle of feeling as though we have gifts and we can be productive and useful with them. They do give us a way to exercise the gifts that you've given us and to bless other people. May we glorify your name by being great at our work this week. But God, I pray that you'll help to keep it in balance. It's not everything we are. We're so much more than this, but you have given us this, and so may we use it fully to the praise of your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online 
at osefc.org.